My live stream on February 25th is going to be with Laura Bricker, one of the hosts of Crime Writers On. I'm very excited to have her on the live stream. We are discussing her true crime book, Lie After Lie. You don't have to read the book ahead of time to participate in the live stream, but it might be helpful because we are going to present it a little bit like a book club. That is Thursday, February 25th. It is at 3 p.m. Eastern. We will be on the Crime Lines Facebook page and get vocal so you can watch in any spot, and the link will be in the show notes. When Pamela Butler disappeared in February 2009, two persons of interest rose to the top of the list. But the investigation stalled out until a cold case detective took a look at the file in 2017 and found that he wasn't setting out to solve one cold case, he was going to solve two. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to Crimelines, or welcome back. If you are new, we are talking about the case of Pamela Butler tonight and how her case helped solve another. At the time of her disappearance, Pamela Butler had really made a life for herself. She had to work very hard from where she came from to own a beautiful home, beautiful cars, and have a career she was invested in. Pamela and her brother Derek had grown up with just their mother Thelma in what Derek has described as a rough neighborhood. All three were extremely close, and Pam's drive and ambition kept the family on their toes, and she encouraged everyone to strive for more and to strive for what they deserved in life. Pam's big career break came through a summer job with a government agency. Being as focused and career-minded as she was, she used that as a springboard into other opportunities until she found herself working as an IT professional for the Environmental Protection Agency. Pam bought her home in Washington, D.C. She had two cars that she kept in perfect condition. She had a Mercedes and a Jaguar. And as Pam moved up in the world and became more financially stable, she was able to give back to her mother, Thelma, taking her out places and paying for everything. Pam and Derek went into real estate together as well as a little bit of a side income, and they owned at least one apartment building in the area together. Pam did not have any children, but her nephew, Brandon, did move in with her during his teen years, so her role was upgraded from aunt to caregiver. With this case, I know there is a danger of falling into the trope of this career woman who didn't make time for love until it was too late, but that's not what happened here. Pam did not get married and have children, and yes, she was ambitious and loved her work, but she made time for family, friends, and yes, dating. Not being married doesn't mean not finding romantic happiness or fulfillment. And like a lot of people, Pam used online dating sites to meet some of these people. In the summer of 2008, 46-year-old Pam was on the eHarmony site when she was matched with a 42-year-old man named Jose Rodriguez Cruz. Jose had grown up in Puerto Rico and New York, and he currently worked as an office clerk at a substance abuse center. For those who don't know their online dating sites well, eHarmony is a relationship dating site, not a casual hookup site. Those who are using eHarmony are looking for someone they're going to spend some time with. Initially, that's what it looked like Pam found. It was obvious to those around her that she was pretty taken by Jose. They started seeing less and less of her as she made plans to spend more time with him. 
and not in the he's isolating her way, not a controlling way. With as many abuse cases as I cover here on Crime Lines, I think I need to clarify that, that the reason she was spending more time with Jose and less with her friends is because she was having fun. She was enjoying her time with him, not because he was trying to distance her from other people. Jose really turned on the charm for Pam. Wooing someone sounds like a very old-fashioned way to put it, but that is what he did. He regularly brought her flowers, and when her birthday came around, he bought her a very nice piece of jewelry as a gift. Pam decided at Thanksgiving 2008 that it was time for the family to meet Jose. And they really liked him. He seemed like a real gentleman. He was very attentive to Pam and interested in getting to know her family. But as the winter wore on, Pam started confiding in people that things weren't perfect in the relationship. She told a coworker that sometimes Jose looked at her in a way that made her feel uncomfortable. She also said he was clingy, and she was considering breaking up with him. While she did care for him, Pam was looking for something long-term, and she wasn't going to spend time in a relationship that she didn't think had that future. As Valentine's Day 2009 approached, Pam and Jose were still together. Pam invited her mother, Thelma, out to dinner with them on the 14th, which Thelma double-checked was the correct date. She said to Pam, that's Valentine's Day, and wouldn't she rather go out with Jose alone for a romantic dinner? And Pam told her, no, they wanted to take her out, which was sweet, but it also may indicate the growing ambivalence towards her relationship with Jose. They made plans to pick Thelma up at 3 p.m. to go for an early dinner. So Thelma waited, and they didn't show. She waited a little bit more, and they still didn't show. So she called Pam, both on her landline and her cell phone, but got no response. She then talked to Pam's brother, Derek, because now Thelma's getting a little worried because this wasn't like Pam. But Derek brushed it off. It was Valentine's Day. Maybe Pam and Jose genuinely forgot about the plans with Thelma and had made their own plans. That didn't sound like the organized and punctual and thoughtful Pam, but it seemed a reasonable enough explanation. After church on Sunday, Thelma tried to call Pam again and still got no answer. At this point, Thelma's worry is increasing, but the rest of the family told her not to worry about it. Pam had Monday and Tuesday off that week, so it sounded like she and Jose took advantage of the long weekend and decided to go on a last-minute trip together. But on Tuesday, February 17th, Thelma was done waiting to see where Pam was. She called the family and said they have to figure it out for Thelma's peace of mind, where Pam was, and why she hadn't called to check in with anyone. Pam usually talked to someone in the family, at least daily, yet no one had heard from her in days. A weekend trip away seemed to be getting less likely at this point. All told, five family members went over to Pam's house to see what was going on, but Brandon, her 19-year-old nephew, got there first. He had keys to the place because, until recently, he had been living with her. Brandon also had the alarm code so he could deactivate it and let everyone in. After going inside, Brandon immediately went to the control panel to punch in the code. But the alarm had not been set, which he thought was strange because Pam was security conscious. Not only did she always set the alarm when she left the house, she had multiple cameras monitoring the outside of her home. When Thelma arrived at the house, she noticed there was mail outside. Pam had a security gate with a mail slot, so the postal worker would stick the mail through it and it would land on her porch. There is no mail service on Sundays, and Monday was a federal holiday, 
so there wouldn't have been delivery that day either. The mail had to have been sitting there since Saturday at least. Both of Pam's cars were at the house, but the Jaguar was generally stored in the garage and it was always covered. The car cover was on the ground and the windows were rolled down. This was odd since February in D.C. is not windows open weather. Inside the house, there were no obvious signs pointing to where Pam could be or that something bad had happened in the house, but there were little things. Upstairs in her bedroom, they found the pillows and comforter from her bed on a small sofa, but the bed was stripped of the sheets, which, okay, she usually did laundry on Friday, but in the laundry room, they couldn't find the sheets. They were gone. Also not in the house were her keys and her purse, though, like I said, her cars were still there. In Pam's home office, there were small stacks of paper on the floor, which isn't something Pam would have done or would have left like that. She was a meticulous housekeeper, and should papers end up on the floor for whatever reason, she would have picked them up and put them away before she moved on to something else. Also in the office, they found a pair of latex gloves. One glove was on the desk and one was on the floor. But the most alarming thing they noticed, which seems so random, was that one of the window blinds in the dining room was halfway up. Thelma immediately noticed it because it was so out of place. This is something that a police officer walking through a crime scene might note, but not really pay that much attention to but a mother who knew her daughter's habits caught it immediately. These blinds were top-down, bottom-up blinds, and if you've never seen these before, they are exactly what their name indicates. You can either raise them from the bottom or lower them from the top. They're really great if your window faces a busy street, like Pam's dining room windows did. You can lower the top to let natural light in without exposing your home to everyone and their dog who walks by. Pam always lowered them from the top for this privacy reason. She never pulled them up, and should she do that when she was cleaning the window or something, she would have lowered it back down right away. In checking this window, the family found that it was also unlocked. It was the only unlocked window in the house. The family then checked Pam's voicemail and found that her boyfriend, Jose, had called over the weekend looking for her. And they also found a note from him in the house that was either on a desk or a table, and it said something along the lines of, where are you? Are we still taking your mother to dinner? So that immediately ruled out the two of them going away that weekend. Brandon decided to call Jose to see what he knew, if anything, about where Pam was. Brandon told Jose that Pam was missing, and Jose said they had actually broken up a few days before. And when he last saw Pam, it was around 9 p.m. on Thursday night. He said she was leaving for a jog when he left the house. This story already kind of caught the attention of the family because Pam didn't go on nighttime jogs. She was so focused on safety and security that she had a treadmill so that she could run inside at night, and her running shoes were even found next to the treadmill. So Brandon decided that what they needed to do next was check the security footage of the cameras Pam has outside her house. He got on the computer and logged in. He went back to Thursday, where he saw Pam and Jose leave at the same time on Thursday morning, presumably to go to work. Then there was nothing of note until Jose returned to the house that evening and waited outside until Pam got there 
a little after 9 p.m., and she let both of them in. The next day, Friday, Pam was seen getting the mail from the porch and going right back inside. Other than that, she wasn't seen leaving the house again. Yet, all weekend, Jose was coming and going from the house. Brandon watched the weekend's video recordings right up to watching himself enter the house that day, and he never saw Pam leave. In the recordings, Jose is seen in a few of them leaving with bags, but it's one or two bags, nothing that would make you think he was carrying a body out. And we are going to get into the security footage in more detail later. But at this stage, what the playback told the family was that Jose appeared to be the last one to see Pam. They then called the police to report her missing. The Metropolitan Police immediately came out and searched her house. Of course, there was a fear that Pam's body was somewhere hidden in the house since it was clear she had never left. The family hadn't seen anything, so the police conducted a very thorough search, including of her cars, and concluded the same thing. Pam was not there. So Derek, Pam's brother, then called Jose himself and asked if he could go to his apartment to talk with him, and Jose said sure. Jose told Derek the same basic story he told Brandon, He said he did not see Pam after they broke up, and he gave some details of the breakup. He said Pam had found out that he was still in contact with a recent ex-girlfriend. The contact was because he still saw her daughter, who thought of him as a father figure. Pam didn't like this and gave him an ultimatum to stop communications with the ex and seeing the little girl, or their relationship was over. When Jose wouldn't choose her over the little girl, they split up. As evidenced on the security footage, Jose said he did return to the house over the weekend, but that was just to pick up some of his things and then drop off some of Pam's things that she had left at his place. He didn't see her any of the times he went over there. Derek asked Jose if he had a key to Pam's place, and he said he did. That's how he got in and out while she wasn't home all weekend. And when Derek asked for the key back, Jose said he didn't know where it was. Then Derek asked him about all those odd little things in the house, the window blind, the missing sheets, the office being a mess. Jose said he didn't know about any of them, but he did suggest the sheets were missing because Pam had been seeing someone else. Derek then did something that I'm curious if you would have done because I'm not sure I would have done this. His sister was missing, and here's the boyfriend who was the last to see her. So Derek asked Jose to take off his clothes right there and then. He wanted to look and see if he had any scratches, bruises, bite marks, anything to indicate there was a struggle or a fight between him and Pam. Derek knew his sister, and if she could have, Pam would have fought back hard against any attacker. Jose complied, and Derek didn't see anything. When Derek left Jose's apartment, he went back to the family and said he didn't think Jose had anything to do with Pam's disappearance. But that sentiment was short-lived because a few pieces started clicking together for the family as they started thinking about it some more. For one thing, it surprised them that Pam would have given Jose a key since she wasn't the type who tended to do that She didn't give her boyfriend's keys to her house. And if he had a key, why didn't he use it when he arrived at the house before Pam did on Thursday evening? Instead, he waited outside in the cold until she got there and let them in with her key. Another thing was that note 
asking if they were still taking Thelma to dinner. If they had broken up, why would Jose think he was still invited to a family Valentine's Day dinner? He only knew Thelma for about three months at that point. It wasn't like he had his own independent relationship with anyone in Pam's family. So much like the evidence in Pam's house, it wasn't anything big that made them suspect Jose. It was little things, and they did think something terrible had happened to Pam. And the investigators agreed. Day one, the case was worked as a missing person. Day two, it was elevated to a suspected homicide. There were a few things that turned this into a homicide investigation. One was the search of Pam's house. When the police searched, they brought in a cadaver dog, and the dog alerted to three areas. Two were in the garage. One was the car, and then the other was a red sheet that was found in the garage. And the dog also alerted in the laundry area of the house. The police found some car washing material in the driveway, and they also found some scraps of plastic and trash bags. Most notable was a piece of a black garbage bag on the lower part of the windowsill where the blinds had been pulled up. The reason this was significant was that the windows on that side of the house were not covered by a security camera. That whole side of the house was unmonitored, and it was the only side of the house that was not covered. The blind being up, the window being unlocked, and there being a piece of a trash bag ripped off led the investigators and the family to believe that, tragically, Pam had been killed, put in a trash bag, and then removed from the house through that window. It was the only way in or out of that house not covered by a camera. And who would know that? Only someone familiar with the house. Sure, the cameras were visible, and someone could have cased the house in advance, but why would they do that? What would the motive be? Her purse was gone, but... Nothing else was stolen. Her luxury cars were there. Her very nice things were there. This wasn't a robbery gone wrong. It's much more likely that this was someone familiar with the house already. So the detectives had two things at the top of their to-do list. One was build a timeline of Pam's last known movements, and two, talk to Jose. The timeline of Pam's last movements was pretty easy to build using phone records and the security footage. The footage showed Pam enter the home at 9.16 p.m. on Thursday the 12th with Jose, who had been waiting for her. Jose was seen wearing a dark-colored windbreaker with wide white vertical stripes. About 30 minutes later, the front door opened and Pam stooped to pick up some mail and then she shut the door. The next morning, a bit after 9 a.m., Jose left wearing that same windbreaker. The mail was delivered around noon and about five minutes after it was delivered, the front door opened and someone bent down to pick up the mail. The person's face wasn't visible, but it's very safe to assume this was Pam. It was normal for Pam to be home on Fridays because that was a work-from-home day. And this would be the last sighting of her. The last outgoing call on Pam's phone was on Friday at 10.56 a.m. She also sent a text at 1.58 and that is the last confirmed communication with her. She did not make any more calls or send any more texts. Pam's phone pinged off a tower near her house for two more days, all the way through Sunday the 15th. It did not leave the area until Monday the 16th when it pinged in Northern Virginia, which 
was where Jose lived. So while the cell phone pings made the window of time that Pam disappeared, from Friday afternoon through Monday morning, the police took the phone's usage as a stronger indicator. They narrowed in on Friday afternoon through Saturday afternoon when Pam did not show up to pick her mom up. If true, this meant someone went to the house after she disappeared and took the phone. And like I said, the security footage only showed Jose going in and out of the house. After Pam was last seen getting the mail, Jose showed up with two flowers in plastic on Friday evening around 8.20 p.m. At 12.48 a.m., Jose was seen on the camera walking from the area of the basement door towards the corner of the house that is not covered by a camera. He went back a few minutes later, heading toward the basement door. About 40 minutes later, he left again, walking this same path from the basement door to the area not monitored by cameras. This time, he had a bag in his hand. He went back to the basement a minute later without a bag. And though I took meticulous notes of this timeline, I am not going to overwhelm you with a bunch of timestamps. Let's just say Jose went back and forth a few more times until around 2 or 2.30 in the morning. Sometimes he was carrying bags and sometimes he was not. Then there was no activity on the cameras for around 12 hours until 2.43 p.m. on Saturday the 14th. Jose was seen on the camera carrying two bags. The key he used to let himself in appeared to have something dangling from it, which was what Pam's personal house keys looked like. That hanging part was the fob for her alarm system. Jose went back and forth from the house again, carrying plastic bags and at one point a blue duffel bag. Then he carried in a white bucket and a vacuum cleaner. In total, Jose was there for around two hours on the 14th. When he left, he locked the door and security gate behind him. He was seen carrying two flowers wrapped in plastic that looked an awful lot like what he had brought in the night before. Later that night, someone went to the house. It was dark, and the person cannot be identified from the footage. This person was at the house for about an hour, and a light beam was seen coming from the house that gave the police the impression that this person was using a flashlight. The only clue as to who this person could be was a reflection in the window when the person was standing on the porch. The clothing they were wearing appeared to be a dark top with white vertical stripes. It was similar, if not identical, to what Jose was seen wearing on previous video. A neighbor also said that at some point on this day, he did see someone cleaning Pam's Jaguar and thought it was odd since it was so cold, but he assumed it was a Valentine's Day gift. I already mentioned the cleaning supplies that were found in the driveway, so this bolsters that someone cleaned the car. That may also indicate why the windows of the car were rolled down if they were trying to let it dry or were trying to get rid of a chemical smell from the cleaning. On Sunday, February 15th, there was no activity at the house. Then on Monday the 16th, Jose was back at the house before 8 a.m. He opened the gate with the key and rang the doorbell. When no one answered, he used the key to get in through the basement door. He stayed about 20 minutes and then left with two plastic bags and put them in the trash can next to the house. He went back in and left through the front door with a Macy's bag, a black trash bag, and then walked around to the basement. Four minutes later, he left again with a bag and a painting. He went back in and left for the final time at 8.22 a.m., 
locking up the house behind him. So Jose was at the house on the morning that the phone left Pam's home. This was all the cameras picked up until Brandon arrived the next day. So the detectives headed over to talk to Jose on Wednesday, February 18th, 2009, the day after Pam was reported missing. Almost immediately, Jose offered up blood, DNA, and whatever they needed to clear him as a suspect. The investigators were mostly interested in getting his statement at this point. Jose said he and Pam had dated for several months and that Pam was emotionally abusive towards him. She demanded access to his bank accounts, his email, all of his passwords, and even wanted power of attorney over him. Painting himself as the submissive partner, Jose said he complied with whatever Pam wanted. And I will say right now that there was no evidence found of what he's claiming. Jose then told the police that he went to Pam's house on February 12th to clean the house for her. While he was in the bedroom, he found a used condom under the bed. He and Pam, according to him, did not use condoms, so he suspected she was cheating. He didn't say anything to her about it and just threw it away. According to what Jose had told Derek and Brandon, the two had gotten into an argument that night and he left around 9 p.m. Now, with the police, he is altering this timeline a little bit. He said he stayed over on Thursday and came back after work on Friday around 9 p.m. Now, the security footage does put it closer to 8, but close enough. When Jose got there, he said Pam was angry and confronted him over an email he had sent to his ex-girlfriend. She had seen it while snooping in his account. Jose said that when Pam would get angry at him like this, she would cut him down, telling him that he wasn't a real man and how she needed a real man in her life. And according to him, that's what she did this night. She told him to cut off contact with the ex or they were going to break up. Because of his relationship with the ex's daughter, he refused. Pam went upstairs at one point. She started throwing stuff away that was his. And the Valentine's Day card that he gave her was found in the trash upstairs. So this is actually supported a little bit, but who's to say who threw it away? Jose said he stayed downstairs and got his stuff to leave. He asked Pam for some gold coins of his that she had secured at her house, and she said he couldn't have them until he returned her stuff from his house. So that was what motivated Jose to get stuff out of her house and get her stuff to her house that weekend. Jose said he left the house a few times during the argument to clear his head, which would explain him going in and out of the house a few times that night that we saw on the security footage. Except Jose said he left the house no later than 1 a.m., and that is actually roughly the time he first started going in and out of the house. So for Jose's story to line up with the evidence, the argument was going on at the time he said he left. So his timeline is very inconsistent. Jose admitted going to the house on Saturday the 14th in the afternoon to pick up his things and return some of Pam's things, but he was not the person who went there at night looking around the house with a flashlight. He said he spent the night at his ex-girlfriend's place and she could confirm his alibi. Jose also told the police that he had PTSD from his time in the Army, where he served in Central America in the late 1980s. But he insisted he didn't have anger issues from it. He didn't even really raise his voice at people, and Pam was the dominant one in their relationship. And in this interview, Jose said he had a dream that he was with Pam at Seneca Creek Park in Maryland. He had a feeling she was there. 
the park would eventually be searched, but nothing was found. On the 19th, the next day, the police went to talk to Jose again. He repeated his claims that Pam treated him poorly, even abusively, calling him an idiot and not a real man. But he insisted he never hurt her. The police must have directly confronted him about the dining room window because in the report about the interview, Jose denied moving her body through that window. He pretty much stuck with the timeline that he had given the day before, and he gave permission for the police to search his home, his car, and his phone, as well as providing a DNA sample. The police did confiscate electronics and such when they searched Jose's home, but they found nothing incriminating. The search of Jose's car, however, did show a white bucket like the one he was seen carrying into her house with a vacuum cleaner. The bucket was full of cleaning supplies. Plastic trash bags, a flashlight, and a ball of twine were also found in his car. Then a cadaver dog alerted to the rear passenger seat and the trunk, but no definitive evidence like blood was found. The same day they talked to Jose for the second time, they went to talk to his ex-girlfriend. She said Jose did go to her house on Valentine's Day, arriving around 5 p.m., and he had a teddy bear for her daughter and two roses for her. But she thought he left around midnight. He did spend one night at her place over that weekend, but she thought it was the 15th, not the 14th, like Jose was saying. She said Jose told her the story about finding a condom at Pam's house and that that had sparked the argument that eventually became about Jose's relationship with her daughter. Pam made him choose, and because he didn't choose Pam, they split up. This seemed to the ex-girlfriend like an odd point of contention in their relationship because Jose hadn't seen her daughter recently not since they had broken up shortly before he started dating Pam. So why was Pam all that upset about a relationship he had with a little girl he hadn't seen in six months? It didn't make any sense. The ex was interviewed two more times, and she really wavered between whether Jose spent the night on the 14th or the 15th. If it was the 14th, he couldn't have been at Pam's house, and this would have been a different intruder at the house that night and possibly the real killer. The real killer who just so happened to own a shirt that looked like Jose's windbreaker. Jose initially cooperated fully with the police, but that eventually stopped. Twice in 2009, he spoke with media outlets. One was an interview with ABC News very early on while he was still working with the police. He then did a longer interview with the Washington Post that was published later in the year in November 2009. By that point, Jose was no longer cooperating with the police in any sense of the word. Jose told the Washington Post that he tried to help But the detectives were overzealous and they were digging deep into his past. And that's a fair assessment on Jose's part. They were digging into his criminal history. And what they found were previous allegations and charges related to domestic violence. Quite the opposite of the submissive, never raise my voice story Jose told. Jose insisted the charges were bogus, and this was just an ex lying on him. Jose felt like he was being targeted so aggressively because the Metropolitan Police had egg on their face over the Chandra Levy case. For those who don't know, Chandra went missing in 2001. In 2008, the Washington Post published a deep-dive investigative piece on the case that did not leave the Metropolitan Police Department looking too great. Pam's house was also close to Rock Creek Park, where Chandra's remains were found, drawing another parallel to the case. 
two murders in the same area the police couldn't crack wouldn't have looked good for them. Jose denied to the Washington Post that he had anything to do with Pam's disappearance. He wasn't cleaning up a crime scene when he kept going back to the house, even though he brought cleaning supplies. He was just picking up his stuff, dropping off Pam's like she asked him to. He said that even the time he went over to her house on Valentine's Day was intentional. Jose assumed Pam was still going to take her mother to dinner. So he went around 2.45, assuming she would have left by then to pick her mom up. He did not want to run into her and have a post-breakup argument. He said before he went over there on Monday morning, he did call Pam to let her know he was coming over. He got her voicemail, so he left a message. When he got there and she was not there, he assumed it was on purpose. She didn't want to see him any more than he wanted to see her. Jose stopped talking to the police when he had a polygraph exam scheduled. After getting hooked up to the wires, Jose said he became upset that he was being accused of killing Pam and he refused to go forward with the polygraph. Derek gave a more colorful version of the story. He said that he was there at the station the night Jose was supposed to take this polygraph, and Jose stood up screaming and yelling and pulling the wires off himself. It wasn't any type of quiet defiance. The Washington Post article also pointed to another discrepancy in Jose's story that we have not covered. He claimed Pam had given him keys to let himself into her house, but admitted she hadn't given him the alarm code. Since Pam always set the alarm when she left the house, having keys but no code was pointless. The article also talked about an email sent on Monday the 16th where Jose accused Pam of selling some of his things, and he said he planned to sue her over it. The perspective Jose was selling was that the voicemails and the email proved that he didn't know Pam was missing. He thought she was just avoiding him. Of course, it could also show that he watched Dateline before and knew to do this to cover his tracks. Though the circumstantial case against Jose was building, it never seemed to be enough for the DA to push for an indictment. There was no way to definitively prove that he was the one there in the overnight hours of February 14th. That mysterious intruder could be enough reasonable doubt for a jury. And even if the jury agreed, the windbreaker in the reflection was enough to say this was Jose, we still have the issue of that window. If the state wanted to say that Jose used it to remove Pam's body undetected, they would have to concede that someone else could have used it to access the house at other times. Jose may have been the only one caught by the camera, but it didn't mean he was the only one in that house. So Jose was not the only person investigated. Pam's nephew Brandon had lived with her until a few weeks before her disappearance. The two had an argument over paying bills. Brandon was 19, and from personal experience, I can tell you, it can be a rocky transition from childhood to adulthood around this time. Pam and Brandon had a disagreement over a utility bill. The argument led to Brandon moving out, though he assumed it was temporary, just until things calmed down and they could work out the details, and he would move back in. He had even left most of his things at the house. Brandon also had the alarm code and could have disabled it, but it actually doesn't seem like anyone had disarmed the alarm after Pam last did it. So Brandon was investigated very briefly, but pretty quickly ruled out. Then five months after Pam's disappearance, a tip was sent in via text 
that said something along the lines of, look into the fact that Pam and Derek were not as close as he claimed, that Pam wanted out of a business deal that she and Derek had over an apartment building. It went on to say that Derek was a big-time drug dealer and was working with the police to cover it up. A few days later, a second tip came in saying essentially the same thing, and based on the syntax and text abbreviations and spellings used, both tips may have come from the same person. The siblings did own an apartment building together, and some of the papers in Pam's office that were scattered had to do with her real estate investments. The police asked Brandon about this, and he said, yeah, Pam had mentioned ending the business with Derek because she didn't think he was managing things well. As for the drug dealing, he said he thought Derek may have sold drugs way in the past, but he didn't know about anything currently or recently. And then the investigators also learned that Derek was named in Pam's will. All of this triggered a deeper investigation into the possibility that Pam's brother did it. Derek had not been seen at the house all weekend, but we can't forget about that side of the house that was not covered by cameras and had an unlocked window. If someone could get out that window, someone else could get in it. So Derek was questioned a number of times. The police would put pressure on him, saying that he was the only one with anything to gain and how things weren't looking good for him. But Derek insisted he had nothing to do with Pam's disappearance, and the tip was BS. Aside from selling some pot as a teenager 30 years before, he hadn't sold drugs. He also said he didn't know that Pam was considering terminating their business arrangement. And he pointed out that he actually didn't gain anything from her disappearance. He, Thelma, and Pam all had mirror wills that they drew up together years ago. It made all of them each other's heirs. And unless Pam's body was found, they would have to wait seven years to have her declared dead. Her estate was going to sit in some type of limbo until then. And without Pam's help, Derek couldn't keep the investment property afloat by himself. He ended up losing everything. So contrary to being the one who had the most to gain, Derek actually had the most to lose. Additionally, and I think this is an important point, Derek had made a nuisance of himself with the police. He worried Pam's case would be forgotten in the rest of Washington, D.C. crime. So he wouldn't just call the detectives. He'd show up at the station. He wouldn't wait on reporters. He would call them. Pam's case was on national shows like Crime Watch Daily and Dateline, with Derek sitting for every interview. He certainly was not acting like a man with something to hide. While he was never a strong suspect, Derek was not fully ruled out. The other suspect investigated was the unknown other man that Jose claimed Pam had in her life. Pam had not told anyone else about this new man in her life. She did not have a history of cheating on boyfriends. She was the type who made a clean break of things before she moved on. There was no footage from the home security cameras indicating another man coming and going from the house at any point. And her phone records and computer showed no communications with this mystery man. So the other man theory went nowhere because I'm sure we've all guessed it, it was made up. While the case remained open, the tip slowed down and there didn't seem to be enough evidence to point in any one direction. In December 2010, nearly two years after Pam's disappearance, Jose's ex-girlfriend, who was his alibi for the night of Valentine's Day, went to the police with a log of dates and times that Jose was at her house around the time of Pam's disappearance. On this log, it said Jose spent the night of the 14th. 
But remember, when they previously talked to her three other times, she wasn't sure if it was the 14th or the 15th. She also put on the log that Jose was there on the 16th and the 17th, though she previously said he wasn't. So suddenly, nearly two years later, her memory was actually more clear than it had been within days of the disappearance. For the hundredth time in this episode, it's not making sense. With some questioning, she did admit Jose helped her write the log, but he didn't force her or threaten her. He was just helping her with her memory. But pushed a little more on it, she went back to not being sure it was the 14th or the 15th that he stayed over. Jose was really doing the most, trying to prove this alibi, when the police couldn't even prove it was him at the house. Of course, they thought it was him, but there wasn't enough evidence. The next major development in the case was July 2016, when Pam's family had her declared legally dead. A very sad moment, something very difficult for families to do. They certainly weren't looking forward to it, but it is the next right step so that they could move forward. Not move on, but move forward. Six months after this, a cold case detective with the Metropolitan Police named Mike Fulton pulled the case off the shelf to look through it. Like any cold case detective, he looked at the interviews and suspects already identified and decided to look into each of them with a fresh set of eyes. Fulton quickly cleared Brandon again and then divided his attention between Derek and Jose. Derek was excited. The case was finally active again, but he also had to fight some frustration that he was being investigated. He genuinely worried about being falsely accused and tried for a crime he didn't commit. While Fulton could not let Derek in on what was happening in the investigation, the detective's focus did not sit on Derek for long because once he started digging into Jose's past a little bit more, he zeroed in on him. On the background check, he learned that Jose had a long history of domestic violence and violence against women. Various ex-wives and partners had accused him of abuse going back to the late 1980s, and Jose had been in trouble in 2014 for threatening his female boss. The first thing on his record was late 1980s while he was in the Army. Jose was placed in a domestic violence containment program after his first wife, Marta Haiti Rodriguez, alleged Jose assaulted her. She was given a no-contact order that Jose violated within days. The two did eventually reconcile. In April 1988, the Army had a psych profile done on Jose that showed him not to be the submissive, gentle person he told the police he was. Instead, the psychologist wrote that Jose had chronically unstable relationships and unpredictable behavior. He had inappropriate and intense anger and lack of anger control. Then threats of suicide and threats of possibly harming others led to him being hospitalized. He was given a general discharge from the military, and he and Marta moved to Virginia. Then in November 1988, Jose stabbed someone, but pleaded down from malicious wounding to assault and battery. In February 1989, Marta filed a police report saying that Jose had grabbed her hair and slammed her head into the car's passenger window one day while they were driving. She also said she found a marriage license indicating Jose had married someone else even though they weren't divorced. Marta then moved in with a roommate in Arlington County and worked as a nurse's aide determined to stay away from Jose. They did have a son together at this point who was living with family in Puerto Rico while Marta got things stabilized so she could bring him home and support him. On March 29, 1989, about a month after 28-year-old Marta left Jose, an Arlington County police officer 
happened to see Jose trying to force Marta into a car. He ran over to assist, but before he got there, Jose punched Marta in the stomach. A passerby also witnessed this, and he made it to Jose first. He jumped Jose and pulled him down to the ground. When the officer got there, he separated Jose and the Good Samaritan and ordered Jose to stay down. Jose refused, and he resisted as the officer handcuffed him. Marta told the police officer that Jose was her estranged husband and that he had kidnapped her the day before when she left her apartment to go to work. He grabbed her from behind and told her he had a gun. He then took her to a motel where he held her at knife point against her will and sexually assaulted her. The next morning, Jose drove Marta to D.C., where she managed to run away from him. She got back to her apartment, and though she was terrified, she knew she had to go to work. She missed the day before and couldn't lose her job since she needed it to support herself and bring her son home. Marta had just stepped out to go to work when Jose grabbed her and the rest played out. Thankfully, there were people there to intervene. The officer searched Jose and found a knife in his pocket. In plain sight in his car were twine and tape, which Marta said he used when he kidnapped her the day before. Jose said right in front of the officer, if I can't have her, no one can. When he was asked what he meant by that, Jose said he would see the both of them dead before Marta was with anyone else. During the full interrogation over this kidnapping and this alleged kidnapping, Jose cried, and he talked about having been forced to kill innocent civilians in El Salvador, which is something he would repeat 20 years later when questioned about Pam's disappearance. But something to note, Jose was never stationed in El Salvador, according to his military record and there are no indications he had missions to the country. It's not impossible that this happened. There's just no proof of it, and Jose is a proven liar, so make of it what you will. The court date for the hearing over the kidnapping charges was set for May 18, 1989, but Marta didn't show up, and the case could not proceed without her testimony. A week later, her roommate reported her missing. Reading back on this 28 years later, this grabbed Mike Fulton's attention. The man who is a person of interest in Pam Butler's disappearance just so happened to have a missing wife. The kidnapping charges against Jose were eventually dropped when Marta never made contact with the police or the DA. Marta's family was worried about her. A few days before the court date that she missed, she had called them and she was talking about her new job and how she was going to bring her son home soon. And then suddenly, Marta dropped off the face of the earth. She was working so hard to reunite with her son and then out of nowhere, completely cut off all contact. They knew something was wrong. Eventually, Jose took custody of his son, and no one in the family heard from Marta again. So the cold case detective, Mike Fulton, moved from the Pam Butler case to dig a little more into the Marta Rodriguez case. And he learned the case was actually closed because Marta was found alive in the year 2000. A woman in Miami used Marta's name, birth date, and social security number to get a driver's license. When that application for the driver's license went into the system, it triggered the alert on Marta as a missing person. The Miami police met with the woman, and she said she was Marta Rodriguez, the missing person. She gave an address where she used to live in Virginia, and she gave Marta's birthday and social security number. So the missing person's case was closed. But Fulton was not ready to walk away quite yet. 
aside from this woman pinky promising that she was Marta, there didn't appear to be any verification done. No one even looked at a picture of Marta and compared it to this woman. So Fulton had Miami fax him a copy of the driver's license. The woman was not Marta. Fulton then followed up on the Virginia address provided, and that was not Marta's old address. It was the home of another woman, Jose's second wife. The woman posing as Marta turned out to be the sister of that second wife. She had been in the U.S. undocumented when Jose gave her Marta's documents and information, saying that Marta wasn't using them. She then assumed Marta's identity so that she could live and work in the United States. The actual Marta was still missing. And so was Pam Butler, and there was one person who connected them, Jose Rodriguez Cruz. Fulton reached out to Marta and Jose's son, Ansel, who was then an adult. Ansel said that when he was a child, he was terrified of his father. Jose was abusive. One time, Jose flew into a rage and began threatening his second wife with a gun. Ansel, scared, ran and hid in his father's office area. In there, he saw a piece of paper with the name Marta on it. Curious if it was about his mother, he pulled it out. He started to read it, and it basically said, I, Jose Rodriguez Cruz, am responsible for Marta's disappearance. Ansel realized that this sentence was part of a suicide note. Terrified, he put it back where he found it and didn't say anything. It is heartbreaking to imagine how scared he was as a child, but also the weight of that through the years. With the story finally off his chest, Ansel provided a DNA sample, which was run through the database in the hopes of finding Marta somewhere. And they got a hit very quickly to a Stafford County Jane Doe found back in 1991. A few Civil War relic hunters were in the dense woods searching for the artifacts when they found a body. The wooded area was between the north and southbound lanes of I-95 in Stafford County, which was about an hour south of where Marta lived. The body was not initially matched as a possibility for Marta, though it's not clear why. The remains were skeletal, so hair, eye color, skin color, none of that could be determined. But the age and small stature did match Marta. But she wasn't matched to this Jane Doe initially, and then her case was closed nine years later when they thought they found her. So without Mike Fulton following up on this and staying on it, Marta's body would have never been identified. Marta's murder case did bolster the case against Jose for Pam's disappearance and suspected murder. Jose was arrested in April 2017, eight years after Pam was last seen, and he was charged with first-degree murder. Jose would not end up going to trial. In October 2017, six months after his arrest, a plea deal was announced. Jose agreed to plead guilty to second-degree murder in exchange for 12 years in prison, followed by five years of supervised release. There was a condition attached, though. He had to make a good-faith effort to lead police to Pam's body. That's what Thelma and Derek wanted. They wanted her back. Jose told what happened the night Pam disappeared. He said that he went over there on Friday, February 13th, 2009. The two were in the basement when they got into an argument. Now Jose said the fight was actually about his job and finances, with Pam saying he needed to do more to improve his own life. During the fight, 
Jose punched Pam in the face, and she fell to the floor. He then straddled her and strangled her with his hands. After she was dead, Jose turned off the motion sensor lights outside of her home as to not set them off. Then he brought Pam's body to the first floor, lowered her out of that dining room window, and carried her to his car. When he left to dispose of the body, Jose said he went down I-95 and left her in a heavily wooded area along the median. This revelation was a surprise, but not entirely a shock. Jose had left her in the same type of place. Marta, his first wife, had been found, and not that far away either. And while I understand Jose had to make a good-faith effort to recover Pam's remains as part of his plea deal, he basically implicated himself further, in Marta's case, with this revelation. Jose also admitted to taking evidence out of the home, cleaning up, and disposing of Pam's cell phone. Jose's plea deal was accepted, and the police went to search for Pam's body. Unfortunately, the area Jose said he left her had been under construction in the previous eight and a half years. That stretch of highway had been widened to ease traffic and to implement carpool lanes. It was possible, or even likely, that Pam's remains had been unknowingly disturbed with this activity and possibly paved over. But because the authorities believed Jose had told the truth, the plea deal stood. But what a blow to the family. They had only supported the 12 years in the hope it meant getting Pam back so that they could bury her. Instead, they got nothing, and Jose, at 51 years old, was very likely going to eventually walk out of prison. Except, Derek wasn't done. His sister had gotten some type of justice, but he was not going to let Marta be forgotten. That persistence he had in getting Pam's case solved was now focused on getting justice for Marta a woman he had never met. Two years after pleading guilty to killing Pam, in October 2019, Jose was indicted for Marta's murder. It had been 30 years since she went missing. Derek traveled to the press conference to hear the announcement for himself. In November 2020, rather than go to trial, Jose pleaded guilty once more to second-degree murder. The twice-convicted killer, who terrorized partners, wives, and his own son, is currently awaiting sentencing. Thank you for listening. You can find Crime Lines on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Crime Lines True Crime. Crime Lines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crime Lines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. I also live stream two or three times a month on Get Vocal. To see my upcoming live stream schedule, follow the Get Vocal link in the show notes. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.